Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight's story is one that left people wondering, was there even a crime committed here? But I think you'll agree, there most certainly was. As one source describes the case, she disappeared from one of the busiest streets on earth at the sunniest hour of a brilliant afternoon, with thousands within sight and reach, men and women who knew her on every side, and officers of the law thickly strewn about her path. This is the story of missing socialite Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold. But first, a Victorian society tip. Our girl that we're covering tonight came from money. She was considered an heiress to a, quote, fancy goods import business managed by her father, Francis Arnold, that specialized in perfumes. Nearly every source I consulted on this story made sure to mention that the Arnolds were part of the social register. So tonight's tip is all about the social register and how to get on it. Because guess what? It's still a thing. It began, though, back in 1887 in New York City when Lewis Keller, a newspaper society columnist and golf promoter, compiled a list of calling cards left by wealthy society ladies at the homes of other wealthy society ladies. However, the list was not to include any new money, only old money names. The first list was comprised of about 5,000 names selected by an anonymous advisory committee, most of whom were descended from early American settler families. So rich white people who had not made their wealth in their own generation, but those who were born into it. Wikipedia states the register, it has been noted, was very much a product of Gilded Age excess. In the 1910s, the register expanded to include multiple volumes covering other cities. By the 1970s, the publication was sold to Malcolm Forbes of the Forbes Media Empire, who consolidated the register back to a single volume comprised of a who's who of the entire United States. In 2014, Forbes sold the publication to, quote, longtime listed member Christopher R. Wolf, who is a finance guy, I think. And it's still going. Though the social register was frequently referenced and carried much influence early on, since the 1990s, the significance of inclusion has waned. It's been stated that the world of social luster has been so overshadowed by celebrities that it doesn't have any kick anymore. The Rob Report, which is a luxury lifestyle magazine covering things like automobiles, aviation, boating, real estate, and watches, states that nowadays inclusion in the social register, quote, bespeaks old money, Ivy League, trust funds, privileges of birth, fox hunting, debutante balls, yachting, polo, distinguished forebearers, family compounds in the Adirondacks, and a pedigree studded with 19th century robber barons. The publication itself includes a person's contact information, schools attended, and the social and country clubs which he or she belongs to. I think nowadays there is also a summer edition that includes the name of your yacht. Now, so far as etiquette regarding the social register goes, much is the same now as it was then. The most prominent rule seems to be that no one really talks about the social register. In the early days, it was considered bad form to explicitly reference the social register, but behind closed doors, you better believe everyone was busy memorizing it. Nowadays, the sentiment is much the same, except as inclusion has grown, so has the mystery of who is on it and how they got selected. At least that seems to be what they want you to think. It's sort of a happy happenstance if you find yourself included. By the other side of the same coin, though, there is also a very deliberate application process for inclusion. The same as during its inception, membership eligibility is determined by a secret advisory committee. 
If you're not born in or married in, the third way to gain admittance to the list is sponsorship by another member. According to the Raw Report, during this process, the applicant must submit as many as five letters of current members praising their friends' philanthropy, unflagging taste, and discretion. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was born July 1, 1885. She was the second born of four children to parents Mary Parks Arnold and Francis R. Arnold. Her father's family could trace their lineage all the way back to the arrival of the Mayflower. He attended Harvard University and owned and operated a very successful perfume import business. The family lived in New York City and were listed among the elite society in the social register, as I just introduced you to in the Victorian society tip. So they were old money, okay? Dorothy herself attended Velton School for Girls, which was a private school in Manhattan, and afterward earned a degree in literature and language from Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. Our story takes place in 1910, five years after Dorothy has graduated, when she is an aspiring writer living with her parents. Now, if you were to ask Dorothy's parents what kind of daughter she was, they would likely say all of the proper things. As one newspaper would put it later, her primary focuses were that of private theatricals, musical soirees, and literary conversations. When it came to men, her father would say, I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did. And it's likely they believe these things. But as it would turn out, our girl Dorothy has a bit of a secret life. Earlier that year, she submitted a story to McClure's magazine, but it got rejected. Now, despite her family shelling out to send her to school for writing, it doesn't sound like they ever expected her to actually use the degree for anything, and they insensitively ridiculed her after the rejection. After this, she asked if her father would set her up with her own apartment. Her reasoning was so that she could write in peace, but also maybe she just wanted to get away from her unsupportive family. Her father, to no one's surprise, declined her request saying that a good writer should be able to write anywhere. Dorothy, though, was not one to give up and submitted a second short story, which was also rejected. This rejection greatly amused her family, who continued to poke fun and tease her about her failed writing career. Her friends reported this caused Dorothy much discouragement and embarrassment. But it sounds like she wasn't ready to give up yet, as it's at this point in about November of 1910 that she secretly rents a P.O. box at the post office to continue corresponding with publications more privately. What's more, so far as her friend Dorothy and her secret life, is that she took a little break from vacation with her family earlier that fall to secretly spend time with a man. Yes, scandalous indeed. In September, Dorothy was on vacation with her family in Maine when she told them she'd like to take a week apart from the family to visit with an old classmate from Bryn Mawr in Boston. Her family agreed, and off she went. Except she was not spending the week with a classmate, she was secretly meeting up with a man named George Griscom Jr., Griscom is depicted in the sources I have as a bit of a man-child. He's described in one source as a plump, sideburned 42-year-old, making him about 17 years older than Dorothy, who lived at a hotel with his elderly parents. Griscom was known for constantly reminding everyone to refer to him by his preferred nickname, Junior, and always accompanied his parents everywhere, including vacations. Though the Griscoms were wealthy, Junior is not the kind of man the Arnolds wanted their daughter associating with which is why Dorothy had to come up with some cover story to spend time with him in Boston. 
While in Boston, the two stayed the week in a hotel together, which Dorothy paid for by pawning some jewelry. After the little excursion, Dorothy returned to Maine to finish vacationing with her family. But they somehow found out she was not with the Bryn Mawr classmate as she had told them about, but with Grizzcom instead. Her parents were furious with her and forbid her to have any further communication with him. Back in New York, though, she did secretly meet up with him again in November, right before his family departed for vacation to Italy. The end of that month, Dorothy again asked to go visit the same Bryn Mawr classmate, but this time in Washington, D.C., and this time she really was going to see her female classmate. While there, something sort of odd takes place. Dorothy arrived the day before Thanksgiving, and the next morning, despite being a guest in someone's house, Dorothy just does not want to get out of bed. She doesn't say she's sick or anything, she just feels like lounging in bed a while. That day, Dorothy received a delivery of what is described as a bulky envelope at her friend's house, which is kind of weird because first off, it's a holiday. There's no U.S. mail that day. And second, how would her mail even be getting delivered to her there in D.C.? Even if she forwarded her mail from New York to that address in D.C., it's unlikely anything forwarded from the day before would get there that quickly. So it's a bit of a mystery, and when the envelope is delivered to Dorothy, still in bed, she acts very ambivalent and disinterested in it and just kind of tosses it aside. Her friend assumed it was perhaps one of her stories she was trying to have published, but knowing it's a bit of a sensitive subject for Dorothy, she doesn't press the issue of the envelope further. It was all just a bit weird, though. The next day, bright and early, Dorothy comes downstairs dressed, packed, and ready to depart. And everyone is surprised. They had thought Dorothy had planned to stay on with them through at least Sunday or Monday. Dorothy responds, nope, this was always my plan, and she heads back to New York City. Back in New York, Dorothy's mother is also surprised to see her daughter walking back through the door so soon. She also thought Dorothy was going to stay with her friend through the weekend. But no, Dorothy replies to her too, she never said that. She had always planned to return that day. All this to say, she's just been acting a little bit mysterious lately. A few weeks later, on the morning of December 12, 1910, Dorothy told her mother that she was going to go shopping that day for a dress for her younger sister's debutante party, which is like a fancy party to officially introduce a woman to society, indicating she's ready to begin receiving suitors for marriage. Her mother tells her, well, if you're going dress shopping, why don't I come with you? But she brushes her off saying, no, it's fine, you don't have to bother, if I find anything I actually like, I'll just call you. And her mother stays home. Around 11 a.m., she leaves the house. Her dress that day was described as expensively and modishly clad, which I take to mean that no one was going to mistake her for working class. She was dressed like she had money. She was carrying probably about $25 to $30 in cash, which today would be about $785 to $942. Temperatures were below freezing that day, but the sun was shining. She walked from her Upper East Side home at 108 East 79th Street towards 5th Avenue, then walked 20 blocks along 5th Avenue to Park and Tilford's candy counter, where she popped in and bought a half-pound box of chocolates. The cashier there was familiar with Dorothy and her family and noted nothing out of the ordinary about her. By now, it was about noon. She then continued down 5th Avenue to the corner of 5th and West 27th Street, where she stopped into Britano's bookstore. She browsed there for a while and purchased a copy of a book called Engage Girl Sketches by Emily Calvin Blake. It was about 2 p.m. when Dorothy exited the bookstore and encountered her friend Gladys King on the sidewalk outside. The two exchanged pleasantries, chatted about her sister's upcoming ball, then Gladys excused herself to go meet her mother for lunch. Dorothy said goodbye to her and told her she herself planned to head home through Central Park. Gladys said the two looked back at one another twice and waved as they parted ways. She also said nothing seemed out of the ordinary about Dorothy. 
She didn't seem to have made it into any dress shops as she said she had intended to, but I don't think that's too unusual. Especially when you set out to go clothes shopping, sometimes you just want to buy chocolate and books instead. That walk home should have taken her about an hour, probably a little bit longer given her dress and the condition of the icy walkways. But come dinner time in the Arnold house, Dorothy still hasn't made it home. After dinner, her family started calling around to her friends asking if they'd seen her, but no one has. Sometime after midnight, one of Dorothy's friends called back, concerned to see if Dorothy had turned up. Dorothy's mother brightly told her, oh, yes, she has. But that was a lie. When the friend asked to speak with Dorothy, her mother quickly faltered and awkwardly told her that Dorothy can't come to the phone because she had a headache and went straight to bed. Obviously, not all is well at the Arnold house. By the next morning, Dorothy still had not turned up and the Arnold family was becoming increasingly concerned. But they do not call the police. A lot of sources say they hired a private investigator, but that isn't exactly true either. Dorothy's brother makes a call to family friend John Keith, who is a junior partner in a law firm. He's just some guy they know. I don't know how they thought this was going to help them. One explanation offered for this seemingly strange decision is that a year earlier, another young New York socialite, Adele Boas, had gone missing and turned up just fine. The press had dragged the family in the reporting, causing utter embarrassment and damage to the family's reputation. Her story is actually what I'll cover in the Patreon bonus content for this episode. But all this to say, this could have been on Dorothy's father's mind when he insisted they not alert the police right away. He was probably hoping she'd come walking in the door any minute. Or perhaps he expected she might have taken herself on another hotel excursion, as she'd done earlier that year. Either way, Keith agrees to help in any way he can. He went over to the Arnold household early that morning, where he conducted a search of Dorothy's room. He found a few letters with foreign postmarks in her desk drawer, though no sources I have mention who they're from, two brochures for transatlantic ocean liners on her desktop, so not like she was trying to hide them, and some burned papers in her fireplace, which appeared to be her rejected manuscripts. The family assured him nothing else is missing from her room, including any of her clothes except for the dress she'd been wearing yesterday. Keith tells the family what he thinks he ought to do next is go around to the city hospitals, morgues, and even jails and investigate. Hopefully, though, she'll just turn up unharmed sooner rather than later. And that's exactly what Keith does over the next few days. But he finds nothing. The family thinks they have one lead, though. The last time she slipped away in secret, she was with George Jr. Griscom. They learned that he is in Italy on vacation with his parents. The Ocean Liner brochures and letters with the foreign postmarks lead them to suspect that maybe Dorothy ran away to be with him. So they found where he was staying and sent a telegram asking if he knew where she was. He responded, no, he did not. But this answer wasn't good enough for the Arnold family, so Dorothy's mother and one of her brothers boarded a ship on December 16th to go over there and ask him themselves. In the meantime, private investigator Keith, who is actually just an attorney, has widened his search to the areas outlying New York City, then as far as Philadelphia and Boston. Weeks went by, and Keith recommended Dorothy's father, Francis Arnold, hire the Pinkerton detectives. The Pinkerton detectives, at this time in 1910, were a private investigation firm with a reputation for getting the job done. The Pinkertons revisited many of the same hospitals and such that Keith had, questioned Dorothy's friends and former classmates, and dispatched agents to search international marriage records and passenger lists for ships bound for Europe over the past few weeks. But nothing turned up. They also circulated Dorothy's description to police departments all over the country. Presumably, the New York City Police Department received this description, but until a report was filed, they weren't going to step in. A reward of $1,000, which would be a little over $33,000 today, was offered for any information leading to her return. 
Finally, on January 22, 1911, almost a month and a half after Dorothy first went missing, the Pinkerton detectives convinced Francis Arnold that it was time to file a missing persons report. The police told him he's waited long enough already, it's time to issue a press conference. No one besides a handful of people even know to be looking for her. And by getting the press involved with a family of their stature, everyone will be looking for her. But you've got to let them know. And Francis Arnold says, let me think about it. Finally, three days later, on January 25th, 1911, a press conference was called and news outlets all over the U.S., Canada, and Mexico picked up the story. The New York Times ran daily coverage of the story as well. There are dozens and dozens of alleged sightings, none of which are real, and two ransom notes come forth, which both turn out to be hoaxes. This is when it all came out about Dorothy's private P.O. box and her involvement with George Griscom, who, in the meantime, by the way, was confronted in Italy by Dorothy's brother and mother. The press reported on a veiled woman who met with Griscom at his hotel, where Griscom appeared to be very agitated during the meeting. This was obviously Dorothy's mother. On the ship back to America, Dorothy's brother was confronted by a reporter who asked about his missing sister, but not knowing his father had broken down and involved the press, he denied Dorothy was missing. All this only fed more fuel to the fire, and theories ran rampant. By the time January turns into February, police were of the opinion that Dorothy is alive and will resurface in good time. Her father was of the opinion that Dorothy was murdered in Central Park that same day she went missing, and her body was disposed of in the reservoir. Police think this is unlikely, as temperatures were in the lower 20s that week, and the reservoir was frozen solid. Either way, they did conduct extensive searches of Central Park and the reservoir when it thawed in the spring, but they found nothing. When Griscom returns home to the U.S. in February 1911, he made a statement to the press that when Dorothy was found, he intended to marry her. He placed ads in newspapers all over the country asking her to come home. On February 11, 1911, a postcard was received that appeared to be written and signed by Dorothy stating that she was well, but in the end, this was believed to just be a very good hoax. By the end of February that year, police had called off the investigation into the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. Years later, in April of 1921, Captain John H. Ayers of the Bureau of Missing Persons gave a lecture and said something to the effect of that everyone, including the police and family, actually knew all along what happened to Dorothy Arnold. He seemed to be implying that even though the case was officially unsolved, it was solved. But the next day, he backpedaled and said that he was misquoted and he never said anything like that. On April 6, 1922, 12 years after his daughter's disappearance, Dorothy's father died. He made no provisions in his will for Dorothy, stating that he was, quote, satisfied that she is not alive. Her mother died on December 29, 1928. Unlike her husband, she died believing that her daughter was out there somewhere alive. Tips and sightings continued for years to come, including one on Fifth Avenue in 1935. Police were dispatched to investigate the sighting, but nothing was found. Dorothy was only 25 years old when she went missing from the busy streets of New York City on a bright winter day in December of 1910, and she was never seen again. So, what theories do we have for her disappearance? We'll start with the least likely as I see it and move towards the most plausible. One theory is that she simply slipped on the ice, hit her head, and got amnesia. This probably seemed more likely in 1910 before we understood all we do now about head injuries, but I don't think this is very likely. They did search hospitals, remember, and even if she started over with a new identity, I feel like someone would have recognized her. They were in the social register, after all. Also unlikely, I think, is the theory that she committed suicide over either her rejected manuscripts or inability to be with Griscom or a combination of the two. 
In one of her letters to Griscom, she wrote, well, it has come back, referring to her short story. Dorothy wrote, McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. Some thought this referenced her taking her own life. I don't read it that way. I kind of take it to mean that her mother will always think any story rejection Dorothy would get would be an accident because mothers always think their children are wonderful and all. So far as being with Griscom, it seems like she was being with him. Maybe not publicly, but she didn't seem to be in any despair over being apart from him. The press had dug into Griscom's past and uncovered at one point that he had a brother who committed suicide by jumping from a ship over being unable to be with a woman. So some theorized this inspired Dorothy, but I think that's a reach. One theory that did grow some legs was that Dorothy died during an attempted abortion. To me, this timing doesn't add up. It's not like she made plans to travel that day or to stay overnight anywhere. She took a walk to buy a dress. But I'll share this with you anyway. This theory came out in 1916, which was that an illegal abortion clinic in Bellevue, Pennsylvania was raided and the doctor running the clinic admitted that yes, Dorothy Arnold was one of his patients. But something went wrong with her operation and she died and was cremated in the furnace. Likewise, I can't tell if this is supposed to be the same story or just a similar one, but also in 1916, an inmate named Edward Glenoris alleged to the warden that in December 1910, a buddy paid him to go with him to pick up a woman in New Rochelle, New York, and drive her to Weehawken, New Jersey. When they arrived, two men were at the home in New Rochelle, one resembling Griscom. The two men brought out a woman who was unconscious and loaded her into the car. Glenoris and his buddy drove to Weehawken and dropped her off, still unconscious. During this drive, Glenoris recognized her as the missing Dorothy Arnold, and his buddy confided in him that it was indeed her. The next day, he said his buddy let him know they weren't done with the job and they had to bring her back to New Rochelle, but she hadn't made it through the night. Glenoris alleged that they picked up her body, transported it back to New Rochelle, and buried her in the basement of the house where they'd first found her. The warden reported this and Glenoris was questioned, but he denies everything and says he knows nothing about it now. Police searched the basements of several houses in the area and found nothing. I mean, the police treated this with some serious, so I guess we have to too, but I don't know. For me to believe this, I need a lot more information. It just seems very random presented as it is. Speaking of Griscom, though, we always have to look at the boyfriend, right? I don't think he had anything to do with her disappearance, though. He was out of the country at the time, and there was no real evidence that she had gone to see him or that they had conspired in any way. Another theory is that she just ran away. This feels more plausible than the other theories we discussed so far, but I don't think this is what happened to her either. She had hardly any money on her, none of her belongings were missing, and again, I feel like she would have been recognized or resurfaced eventually. Finally getting into some more plausible theories now, many say her father's behavior is suspicious, and I have to say, I understand why, though I still don't think it's likely that he had anything to do directly with her disappearance. While it is suspect that he waited so long before taking any real action to bring her home, what I think happened here is that he later stated he believed she'd been killed the day she went missing. I don't think he ever thought they were going to bring her home alive. I think that by involving his attorney friend to investigate and later the Pinkertons, then delaying the press involvement, he was just hoping to find her body and put the whole thing to bed without exposing every aspect of his family to the spotlight. As a parent, and frankly as a good human, I don't think it was the right decision, but I can follow his line of reasoning. I do think, though, that her father had the right idea. I agree with him that Dorothy was killed that day, or possibly even kidnapped and killed later. 
I think she met with some bad people in the park who maybe tried to rob her or harm her, and she was killed. I don't know what was done with her body, but somehow it was never found. I am curious to know what you think happened to Dorothy Arnold, though. If you head over to Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at a goodnight for a murder, you can let me know there. I've posted some photos of Dorothy Griscom and some press coverage over on Instagram and TikTok. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. For the bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier patrons for this episode, as mentioned earlier, I have another story of a missing socialite, this time with a more lighthearted ending. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit a goodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at a goodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. And to accompany episode 36 about Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold, I have a story of another missing New York socialite, one that likely had an influence on how Dorothy's stories played out. This is the story of Adele Boas. So to refresh your memory, in 1910, when Dorothy Arnold went missing, her family waited a full month and a half before officially reporting her missing. We can assume that one of the primary reasons they did that is because they were a prominent, well-known family and they didn't want the scandal. The Arnold family may have well recalled a case from 1909 when another girl from a wealthy New York family went missing. In this case, the girls found safe and the press raked the family across the coals for the sensation it caused. Her name was Adele Boas and she was born in 1896. The middle child of parents Arthur and Blanche Boas, one source describes Adele's upbringing being spent within, quote, a gilded bubble of uptown wealth. On April 23rd, 1909, Adele made plans to meet up with a friend that afternoon, then accompanied her mother on a shopping trip. It got to be about 3.30 p.m. when Adele told her mother that she felt tired and was ready to head home. Her mother wasn't done shopping yet, so she gave her daughter detailed directions back to their home and they parted ways on the corner of West 81st Street and Columbus Avenue. Both Adele's mother and father arrived home that evening around 6 p.m. and were surprised to discover that Adele was not home. She'd stopped in briefly, but then had gone out again, though no one had seen her since. Like the Arnolds, they started calling around to her friends and other family members, but came up empty-handed. The very next morning, the Boas family notified the police, who likewise called in...